Today, the old way is pride. The new creation is humility. There's a Peanuts cartoon I'd like to show at this time that gives us just a little bit of flavor from old. Um, Here you have, when I I get big, I'm going to be a very famous doctor. I'll save everybody. I'll perform miracles of surgery. I'll diagnose swiftly and accurately. I'll work wonders. I'll be a regular M-deity. You know, the very worst aspect of pride is that it causes us to think in terms of us being more than human. Uh, in essence, being God. The very first uh, story in the Bible in Genesis talks about that Garden of Eden and the temptation of the fruit, the forbidden fruit, eating that fruit from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And of course, we know that what prompted all of that was to be like God. So today we're going to be talking in terms of pride to humility regarding a very... um, Familiar parable that Jesus tells, but a parable of real life people that those whom he was speaking to would recognize and would really get this point. I'd like for us to turn right now to the book of Luke, the 18th chapter of the book of Luke, and we're going to begin reading with the ninth verse, Luke 18, beginning with the ninth verse. Will you please stand for the reading of God's word? He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they are righteous and regarded others with contempt. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee standing by himself was praying thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, thieves, rogues, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of all my income. But the tax collector standing afar off would not even look up to heaven, but was beating his breast and saying, God, be merciful upon me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his home justified rather than the other. For all who exalt themselves will be humbled, but all who humble themselves will be exalted. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. We need to understand that tax collectors in the first century were despised people. Taxation was far flung throughout the Roman Empire and was not a regulated system. Instead, the Romans would recruit from among the Jews those who they thought could wring as much taxation out of their own people as possible. So tax collectors got their jobs by promising to be the one who could deliver the most. And tax collectors were seen by uh, the local people as not only being um, those whom the Romans saw as, as, as their own or they would see as lackeys of the Roman Empire, they also saw them as traitors because they would come on to their own family and friends 
and demand taxation that was outlandish. And the Romans didn't trust the tax collectors either because they fit a stereotype of lying, stealing, conniving, cheats. And if they would cheat their own family and friends, then the Romans knew that they were out to cheat them as well. Jesus' first century audience did not expect him to say anything positive about a tax collector. Just as they didn't expect him to say anything positive about a Samaritan. And yet we know Matthew, one of his own chosen 12, was a tax collector. The other person featured in this particular parable is a Pharisee. And Pharisees were esteemed religious leaders of their day. They may or may not have been particularly popular or highly regarded among their people, but they were respected in that their people knew that they were people who lived a righteous life and they practiced their faith in ways that would be hard for a common person to practice. They followed the law and they were also pious. But sometimes that piety and that uh, moral straightness led to a self-righteousness and a bent toward pride. The public considered them to be good people, but Pharisees thought more highly of themselves than even the people did. And consequently, in addition to piety, the Pharisees had an equally deserved res uh, reputation of being overbearing, pompous, Arrogant know-it-alls, pride would set in. Jesus was frequently criticizing the Pharisees because he expected more of them. He didn't see them as evil as much as he saw the great um, point missed in that they could be so influential in such a good way, and yet they chose a route of pride. But we also need to remember that Nicodemus was a Pharisee. And it was Nicodemus who was joined by Joseph of Arimathea who made sure that the body of Jesus was properly buried. So the scene we have today is one of a Pharisee who is off to himself but in earshot of all of the people he's trying to impress. And he prays aloud and loud so that everybody can hear his comparison to other people. He prays something like this. I thank you, God, that I'm better than the thieves and the rogues and the adulterers and the garden variety riffraff that's around here on Temple Mount. I am confident that I believe all the right things and I try to be over the top in doing the right things. Especially I want to thank you that I'm not like that tax collector standing over there. And as a contrast, the tax collector standing over there is beating his chest and he's praying that God will show him mercy because he knows how wrong he has done and how bad he has been. Jesus concludes the story by saying it's the tax collector who went home justified that day, not the religious leading Pharisee. And Jesus puts it this way as kind of the moral of the parable. For all who exalt themselves will be humbled, but all who humble themselves will be exalted.
You know, the religious leader simply did not grasp the significance of what Paul uh, taught to the Philippians. And we have it in uh, Philippians 2, the third verse. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility regard others as better than yourselves. Webster gives us a definition of pride that I'd like for us to glance at. Pride calls for vanity, conceit, narcissism, unreasonable delight in one's position or deeds. I think it's important this morning to note that there is a healthy pride and there is a destructive pride. I want to say a word about healthy pride. Tonight we're going to gather in this room, and I have no doubt, because it's becoming a tradition that Rusty George is going to sing, I'm proud to be an American, and we're going to love it. And we're going to hear those words, I'm proud to be an American, where at least I know I'm free. And I won't forget the ones who died who gave that right to me. Healthy pride is that feeling of joy and happiness that sometimes we say is welling up in us, but it is a joy and happiness that is really pointing to somebody else or something else that benefits us. So when we hear that word tonight about we're proud to be an American, you can be proud to be an American because the pride is in pointing to those who have died and have paid the ultimate price so that we can be free. Now, I'm a proud parent. I I love my children. Tammy and I are both proud of our kids. We're proud of who they are and what they do, as are you. Did I tell you that I'm a grandparent? (laughs) Yeah, that's true. I have a grandbaby named Claire Bear, and uh, she's really a delight. Now, I need to note that I think we have a healthy pride when it comes to Claire Bear because we do recognize that uh, it's our children who gave us this grandbaby, in essence, and, and, and so it does cause us to well up with joy and happiness. But my kids knew that I could slip into a destructive pride. And so early on in Claire Bear's life, when I was posting on Facebook much too much, uh, too much um, they prohibited me to post um, without permission. And that's a good thing. I can't just fling up, as much as the world wants to see Claire Bear, I can't just fling up a picture of her. Even if as she comes on these screens, um, uh, feel free to know that I had to request that flinging on the screens. Do you remember your first brush with pride? Do you? Think about it. Do you remember when you first understood the destructive nature of pride? Or or you learned a lesson about pride? I I was thinking about this this past week in preparing this sermon, and it really was quick and easy coming to my mind. It was when I played football in the seventh grade. And, and we had a, a football team that was um, in Brownsboro. Our high school mascot wa- was the Bears, the Brownsboro Bears. And, you know, that was in a day, you might can relate to this with your school, but the junior high team was called the Brownsboro Cubs. We weren't quite Bears. 
And in even worse matters, the, the girls' teams were called the Barrettes. Now, what is a Barrette? Is that a female bear? Kind of ridiculous, isn't it? But that's the way we did it back then, right? So we were the Brownsboro Cubs, our seventh grade team. Our first two games, we were literally, we were literally fantastic. Nobody could stop us. We won. We won big. And then we traveled to Lindale, Texas. The Lindale High School mascot was the Eagles, the Lindale Eagles. And, and their seventh grade team, I kid you not, their seventh grade team was called the Eggs. <laughs> can, can you believe it? They weren't just called the Eggs, but on the back of their blue jerseys, they had E-G-G-S, the Eggs. The Brownsboro Cubs were playing the Lindale Eggs. And that was the funniest thing we had ever seen. When we saw the Lindale eggs uh, going in front of our bus, we began to heckle them and, and to laugh at them about being the eggs. We said things like, hey, you got egg on your shirt. And, and other snide remarks. So we took the field, kind of gleeful, I might add, that, that we were about to take it to the eggs just like we'd taken it to our two former opponents. And then we kicked off first. And, and the ball went into the arms of one of the Lindale eggs. And, and that egg was a little bit larger than most seventh graders, a little bit faster than most. No, he was a lot faster than most seventh graders. In fact, I don't even know if he was a seventh grader. Anyway, <laughs> he took off with that ball, and I mean there was nothing stopping him. He was running over Cubs right and left until he crossed the goal line touchdown we thought well that was an accident right well it happened again and again and again which leads me to confess that at the end of the game the cubs had been scrambled by the eggs 36 to nothing <laughs> and i was reminded of that proverb 16 18 pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before the fall. You know, an unhealthy pride that's in need of fixing is to be so overtly self-confident that you believe you can do no wrong. It is to believe that your equals in the human race are rare. Pride is generally regarded by theologians as the root of all sin. It is an originating sin. Pride is one of those sins that, that leads to other forms of sinning. And for that reason, pride ranks at the top of the seven deadly sins. Not only is pride destructive to persons, but also to relationships. It leads to other forms of destructive behavior. Pride has an insidious quality. If left to grow unchecked and unexamined, it spreads and transforms into a worship of self. Pride not only hinders us from being open and honest, it damages the lives of those we love. Pride further undermines our relationships 
with making reconciliation, thinking that we can do no wrong and hesitant ever to say, I'm sorry. The common danger of pride is that it leads to temptation. And that's what that early Genesis story is all about. You know, every Sunday morning, well-educated, well-intentioned, hard-working, moral people come to Lover's Lane. And that's you. And if we come here with too much self-confidence and too much bent toward our own pride, then we come with danger. The very moment that we believe ourselves incapable of being tempted is the very moment that we understand our vulnerability. Pride insists, I could never do that. And unfortunately, the moment that we say I could never is just about the moment that the possibility arises. You know, how many times pastors have heard parishioners say, I didn't think I was capable of having an extramarital affair. Or I didn't think I would ever steal, and yet I found myself stealing from my company. It's when we think ourselves beyond what pride leads to, temptation, is when we're most subject to yield to it. And sometimes pride causes parents to try to live out of out their lives and their children's lives. I don't know how many of you saw that clip that kept rolling over and over about what should have been a common seven-year-old baseball game in some town in Colorado. Well, it wasn't just a seven-year-old baseball game, but it turned into a brawl of parents. And the brawl came when a 13-year-old umpire gave both teams a warning warning them to clean up their language or to leave the ball field. Well, that only turned them on. And the first thing you know, the parents of these seven-year-olds are fighting over a baseball game, a t-ball game, and just underscores what pride can do when it's not controlled, when it's unchecked. It can lead to all kinds of ridiculous behavior. Pride leads us to recognize that we are fixer-uppers. That we need the Holy Spirit to come and not only rid us of that pride, but to develop in us a holy humility that is represented in Christ himself. You know, the best definition that I know of humility is down-to-earth. How many times have you described somebody who is really an humble person saying he's down to earth? Sometimes it's somebody who is really a person of great importance, but but you pay the ultimate um, compliment when you say, but they're so down to earth. And you think about it, humility, the root of humility is humus. It's earth, down to earth. Down to earth people know that they have something in common with all of the people of the world. Down-to-earth people know that they, that on a given day that they are no better than anybody else. Down-to-earth people are real and authentic and we enjoy being around them. Humility is being down-to-earth. Joining the human race, if you will. 
are acting on what Jesus said. Judge not. Judge not. For in the same way that you judge others, you will be judged. The great theologian C.S. Lewis, I love the way uh, C.S. Lewis put it, and I wanted to feature it this morning. He said that humility is not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. Not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. Another way we could put it is thinking of others more. Humility knows God, but doesn't just know God, but knows God in an intimate way. Not just knowing about God, but knowing God, and knowing God in such a way, maybe not beating our chest and renting our garments, as did the tax collector, but saying to the Holy Spirit, Lord, rid me of that pride. And restore within me an humble heart. Humility is receiving mercy. The prayer of the tax collector is simple. God, have mercy on me, a sinner. It reminds us of what the prophet Micah said. What does the Lord require of us but to act justly, to love mercy, and to walk how? Humbly with your God. I want to close my sermon by sharing one of the greatest experiences I had of last week. I listened to a sermon that was preached by one of our former youth who had just graduated from Furman University, and that would be Hannah Arata. Now, I note that the, the flowers in the room are for the Arata's 30th anniversary, right? Okay. Well, don't slip into pride, Catherine, okay? I've got to tell this. Hannah is working this summer as a minister doing community ministry in Greenville, South Carolina, in a church that she's been working for for some months. She's worked at this church, and it's a non-denominational church, for the last few years and just loves it. She preached her first sermon last Sunday. Now I want us to feel the impact of this. Here is a young United Methodist woman preaching in a non-denominational church, a sermon that was literally beautiful. I listened to the sermon beginning to end twice. Hannah was a leader in our youth group when she was here, and we all knew she'd be a leader wherever she went. I've heard from our student ministers as well as adult counselors and even other youth who point to Hannah and another young man here, one of our African members, Ephraim, as being two that brought our youth group into a very healthy understanding of multicultural ministry together. The two of them would not settle for having a group that was integrated. They wanted to have a group that truly knew each other as friends and worked beside each other in ministry 
as fellow ministers. It didn't matter to them that they were of different cultures or spoke different, in different accents or even had different color of skin. And when I heard Hannah preaching, I couldn't help but think about the, the sermon that she lived in the midst of our youth program here, all the years that she was here. As I listened to her sermon, I was so impressed by the way she, true to herself, was so humble in her beginning and in her presentation. Hannah, mature beyond her years, was also a very non-anxious presence in the pulpit. Scott, I can assure you and I and Donna, those of us who preached our first sermon, we didn't do it quite like Hannah did. She was so together. And she made her main point this. It's more important to know God than it is to know about God. In fact, it's not enough to know about God if we don't know God intimately. And she was appealing to her congregation that morning that all of us should know God and in doing so, serve God. What a blessing it is for a church, and I say her pastor of many years, to have heard a sermon such as that and to realize that the vow that this church takes in baptism to nurture a child in the faith until they can for themselves claim Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior and grow into a disciple, a follower of his. I couldn't help but think of Hannah Arata when I thought of humility and all the good that humility brings and how humility springs from an humble heart, a heart that wants to serve God and knows our place as a child of God, not better than others, but as a sibling called to serve one another as Christ. Amen.